I am Elle Penelope, author of Epic Fantasy and Paranormal Romance, and welcome to My Imaginary Friends, a look behind the scenes of an author mapping the worlds in my head and making them a reality. Hello, friends. Today is Sunday, May 1st, 2022, and this is episode 168 of My Imaginary Friends. I'm Leslie. So this week's best thing is I had a major breakthrough on my story that I'm writing, the Black Towns novel. This is the second book on my Orbit contract. It's the follow-up to The Monsters We Defy, although they are both standalones. And um, if you've been listening for a while, you'll know that I've been struggling a bit with it. I had the core idea, and I just haven't been able to write it. I haven't been able to settle down and feel good enough about the details in order to start writing. And so I'd been having many breakthroughs. And then this week, I feel like it it cracked wide open to the point where I just started writing the outline over again, basically the synopsis, but just in bullet point format. And I got through the first half of the book in basically one day, because I just understood it. I just sort of got it. And that is what I had been waiting for. And it feels amazing. It feels really good to finally be able to sort of dig into the heart and soul of the story to understand a little bit more about the character perspectives. And when I finish this outline, it won't be drastically different from the outline that I submitted um, to my editor. When was that? February, I believe. But it's different enough that something about the energy of it, I don't know how to explain it. It's like I had something that I could have written, but I don't know, actually, no, I think I could have written that as as the original outline was. You know, I think it was a story. It had the structure of a story that works, quote unquote. But yeah, something was just missing. And so I made some big character changes. I I made some, yeah, it's mostly character changes, motivation changes, also scenario changes, adjustments. So it's like, the setup is the same. The core turning points are basically the same, but so much of it has has changed inside of there. It's kind of like when I first wrote Song of Blood and Stone, and then I had to rewrite it for St. Martin's Press when it was picked up by a traditional publisher. And not even talking about the special edition, because there are three versions of that book. But um, just the the first, the hardcover edition, that was the first St. Martin's Press. You know, it's like, it's the same story. It's just very different. <laughs> and anyone who's read both of them hopefully would understand. Although I, I don't imagine there's many people who have read both of them. But it would kind of be an interesting exercise to see, like, okay, I'm, I'm telling the same story with the same characters, but the structure has changed. Um, I'm trying to think in that instance if the character motivations really changed. Not so much. The characters of Jack and Jasmine just stayed the same. It's just that the things they did, the order that they did them in, that changed. And here, I discovered things about my main characters and what they wanted, how they were going to go about getting them. I really just needed to nail down more realistic or reasonable motivations for everyone. And then there's a, a larger scenario, which is the basis of the conflict. And I found some great stuff in the research that led me to sort of the eye-opening moment. So if you get stuck, 
in a story and it's not feeling either realistic enough or grounded enough or the motivations aren't feeling right and something's just not sitting right with you, what I do is research. I continued to research different aspects of it and try to fill out, you know, the character worksheets so I knew more about them. But in order to answer those questions, I would have to have like, what is the reason why this is happening? And in order to come up with a good reason why this was happening, I needed to understand certain things about how things worked. Like a few weeks ago, I mentioned I was researching dams, I was researching levees. Um, I did some more research on the Tennessee Valley Authority, which is the organization that was started during the Depression. And they built a lot of dams, and they were supposed to be doing these improvements and into the way of life along the Tennessee River. So that includes Tennessee, Alabama's part of Georgia, and um, maybe one of the other states that are right down there. I was focused on Georgia and Alabama. And uh, so the theme of this book is displacement. And so a lot of people in real life, you know, when they build a dam, there's eminent domain, they, people lose their property, where do they go? And I was, I was looking for case studies because I had a thing that I wanted to have happen, but I wasn't sure if it was realistic. And because there are racial, um, animus and disparities involved, I didn't want to go over the top. Like I could easily say, you know, well, the white people did this evil thing to these black people. And that's what the basis of the story is. But as I did my research, I was like, that really wouldn't have happened that way. Like there was a lot of, obviously there's a lot of inequity in the way that, land was purchased and the amount of money that was paid for it and who got what resources when they were displaced from their town or their land. But the original scenario that I had in mind, I just couldn't find any basis for that actually happening. And I didn't want it to go over the top. You know, it's easy to say when you're talking about racism um, to just invent the worst scenario you can possibly think of. And it probably did happen at some point somewhere. But when you do that, you're taking away from the real life triumph and the real life struggles of actual people that lived. And so I wanted to find something that was really grounded, even if it was just one case. And so I found a couple of cases, different scenarios of different things happening that I could sort of combine and make my own. And that's really what I had been looking for. And I actually spent weeks searching for this and doing different kinds of searches until I could find something to dig my teeth into. and that made sense. And then I was like, okay, this is what happened. I could have this scenario and then I can tweak it. I can take creative license with that. But it's not like I'm inventing some sort of devilish, you know, person that didn't actually exist who had these nefarious plans that were just racist. Um, there's enough real life racism that I don't have to invent fake racism. It just that just felt wrong to me. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to do that. So once I had my sort of scenario for the real life conflict that this town is going through because of eminent domain, because this dam is being built, um, and then kind of went back and forth with the characters and what is actually happening with them. So I was doing other kinds of research into folklore and mythology. So we're bringing in the fantasy, the fantasy aspect of the story and shoring that up and trying to invent my own mythology and figuring out what I'm pulling from, you know, various sources and how how much I'm relying on a real life um, religion or mythological figures and how much I'm going to be 
making it my own, changing it, creating, you know, having that as the basis, but creating something new. And so, yeah, all of these things just sort of started coming together. And I think it's just because I'd been sitting in my chair, you know, button chair, hands on keyboard. That's the, it's an acronym. Doing the work for weeks, four months until I got it. And that's usually how it happens. But it always feels nice to, to really just have that breakthrough moment, have that aha light bulb moment. I'm sure I've talked about it many times before on this podcast. And each time it just feels like a wonderful gift and just very grateful for it. Um, and a lot of times it does happen when you're not sitting down, but if you're not, you know, when I'm away from the computer, when I'm living my life, when I'm taking a walk or in the shower or whatever, that's when those ideas pop into your mind. But if I hadn't been here every morning, sitting during the work, then I couldn't have gotten the the light bulb when I was away from the computer either. So that's where we are now. I think the day that it happened, I started writing by hand, which I don't do. I wrote something like 800 words by hand. So I started in my notebook and then I was like, okay, I don't think I want to use these words, but I'm, I'm going to want them in my Scrivener document so I can refer to them. So either I'm going to have to retype them or second option, which is I moved into my Remarkable 2 tablet, which is um, an e-ink tablet that's kind of like mimics paper. And there's no apps on it. The only thing you can do is write. You can import PDFs and fill them out, which I do a lot also, but I just opened up a new notebook and I started writing. And the good thing about it, it, it is that it has this uh, handwriting to text, so it converts your handwriting to text. I was writing in cursive and I do not have the greatest handwriting by any means, but it's extremely accurate. Like I would say it's like 85% accurate. So I sent it to text and I spent about five to 10 minutes cleaning up the words, um, the things that it didn't understand. But like I said, I found it to be much better than the um, Apple iPad Pro at reading my handwriting and just being great. So yeah, sometimes whatever I was going through, I had to write it by hand. And I was just, it was what I was talking about last week, sort of finding the character voice doing an experiment in a character voice, which led to other discoveries. I was like, oh, okay, they told me that, you know? And I'm not really a person who believes that I'm channeling my characters and that the characters are just speaking through me. Some writers are like that. I'm much more manipulative of, okay, they have to do this. And how do I make them do that in a way that's realistic? But sometimes you just get those those spurts of inspiration. And I do leave room for that. That's part of plotting but also being a discovery writer where I'm constantly discovering things in between what I've plotted. And uh, and those things became very important to other character motivations, which go into the actual plot. Like they're all a, a braid, they're all weaved together. So yes, had the breakthrough, feel great about it. Um, I've taken the weekend off, start fresh again on Monday with it, finish the outline, and maybe start writing within the next week or so. I think I might be able to do that. I have not been doing the two books at the same time thing that I was trying to do, like splitting my week. Um, once I got on this train and started making progress with the Black Talons book, I just didn't want to tear my focus away. So, so far that experiment has been completely unsuccessful because I've never, <laughs> I've never managed to do the four day, two day or three day two-day split, whatever I was trying to do, like work on one book for a, f- a few days and then the other book, which would be Beastly Kingdom, for the other couple of days. 
I did reread Beastly Kingdom, the part that I had drafted already. This was about a week ago. So the next thing I'll try is two a day, maybe two writing sessions a day. I've done morning and afternoons before. Usually I don't write in the afternoons. I do all my writing in the morning and then move on to my business um, around 11 a.m. But I do need to get two things drafted at the same time. And we're still in the same stage of two books at the same time, which is not a position that I want to be in, but it's where I am. So since the splitting the days hasn't worked, I'm going to try two a days and we will see what happens. And maybe maybe I just do it all in the morning. Maybe I do two sprints. You know, I, I try to get 2,000 words on one and maybe 1,000 words on the other. Because I can do 3,000 words a day. And maybe if I split that way, I will be more successful. And both things will get done at the same time, maybe a little slower than they would have otherwise. But it's better than nothing getting done at all on one book and then being in the definitely bad position of trying to rush something which just doesn't work for me. So yeah, we'll try something else and see if that works. Another of this week's best thing was more personal, but um, we had a family gathering yesterday. My aunt turned 90. And so this is the first time that I've seen most of my family since the pandemic started into over two years. Um, a lot of my family is, is local, it's Maryland, but we usually get together several times a year. Um, but, you know, there's several elderly members, and so we all tested before, and then we got together and gave her a surprise 90th birthday party, and she was very surprised. And it was lovely to see everyone. And, um, yeah, you know, obviously, I'm not sure how many more of these birthdays um, she's going to have, so it was wonderful to see her. I have – my mom's siblings are um, 88, 89, and 90, and they're all here. They're all doing great, um, but, you know – it's good to, to be able to get together for something positive. You know, a lot of times you're only getting together for funerals um, and weddings, but there hasn't been a wedding in a while. So birthdays are great. And being able to see everyone um, was wonderful and was good for the soul. I posted an article, I guess it was in last week's um, footnotes newsletter, about these awful truths about publishing. And it was something that I had seen in another newsletter that I'm a part of. It was originally published in 2010, and then I see it was updated in 2020. And I I was Googling something in, in the article and found the original from 2010. And it's just amazing how many there's, – there's 10 awful truths about book publishing. I think eight of them have been the same for 10, 12 years, which is interesting. It's things like, you know, there's more books every year. There's 4 million books published a year. Um, in 2019. So millions of books being published every year, of course, including self-publishing. Um, book sales are stagnant. You know, there's ups and downs. I know during the pandemic, like 2020, book sales went up, traditional book sales. And I just saw something recently somewhere else that this year, book sales are down. Um, and that average book sales are shockingly small. That the average US book is now selling less than 200 copies per year and less than 1,000 copies over its lifetime. And I mean, with 4 million books being published every year, yeah, how many people read a lot? And the average American reads one book a year or something like that. So you've got your whale readers, which is a term that's used a lot, people who read a lot. Like I did a survey of my readers and romance readers tend to read a lot anyway, but people are reading three, four books a week. Um, Some people read two books a day. 
Obviously, these are probably shorter books if they're reading, if they're big romance readers, maybe they're reading category romances, which I think can be anywhere from 40 to 70,000 words. I can get a 70,000 word book read in about three and a half, four hours. So I'm a very fast reader. Um, and I, I, I read about three or four books a year, I think. I mean, three or four books a week. Sometimes more, sometimes less, depending on how much I need it. So, uh, it's harder to sell new titles is another one of them. And, you know, it's, it's sort of just like these awful truths about the industry. If they're the same for decades, then that's just how it is. And you just have to live with it. I don't know what my point is. It's just, I guess it feels good to have gotten past, <laughs> past 200 copies um, for like for my book, for Savage City, having come out a month ago. And I haven't checked in a couple of days where it's at. It's under under 300. And at least ebook and uh, print, I don't get audio figures for a while. And so I am disappointed in the sales, um, even though I'm very grateful to have gone past like the average, I guess. So yeah, I think I think this will just help me in setting goals going forward and trying to figure out how to incrementally increase that. Um, I know you know the the basic advice is to just write another book, which of course I'm doing. I'm committed to three in the series, and I think that as you have a completed series, you can you know lower the price of the first one, sometimes make it free, get people in with the loss leader, all of that. Maybe write a prequel. I I don't have any ideas for a prequel yet. So like a prequel novella that would that I could give away for free to get people into the series. And then it becomes a four book series and all of these kind of tactics tactics and strategies and things for selling more books. So there's plenty of steps left to take. Um, right now I'm just focusing on writing these books. But I am, you know, I'm taking another class on building an audience and marketing. And I'm really looking forward to diving into that to, you know, just try to improve the self-published sales. It's one of the reasons why I like being hybrid, because I really do enjoy self-publishing, but I'm not writing to market. I'm not in Kindle Unlimited. Uh, there's a lot of things that I am not doing that a lot of very successful self-publishers in this subgenre are doing. And I understand that too. And I think the audiences can be different. There's obviously overlap between the my traditionally published books and my indie books, but they are different subgenres and there's different vehicles for sales, you know, something the traditional publishers are focused on the bookstores and I don't have access to that. So I'm focused on online. I mean, at the end of the day, it's always difficult to sell books. It's a difficult industry. <laughs> this article, 10 Awful Truths, kind of underscores it no matter how you're publishing. And writing is also very hard. <laughs> Like, nothing is easy. Uh, nothing worth doing is easy. So I'm still here plugging away and just trying to make sure that I'm in love with the stories that I write, because at the end of the day, it's the only thing I can control. And just hoping that other people will love them too. And I know that I've gotten feedback from readers who have loved Savage City and other books, and so that always feels really amazing. So just trying to stay focused. And even though it is disappointing, but regrouping and always trying something new and trying different 
things to continue to market and to continue to do all the stuff that you're supposed to do or that I don't know when you say supposed to do I always am like uh supposed to because that could mean a lot of different things things that I'm willing to do that I think might work perhaps that's a better way to phrase it and finally I saw some casting news for Wheel of Time the TV show for the second season and I am not plugged into any controversy. I assume that there's always going to be controversy when you're casting people of color in roles that were perceived to be white. But um, there is, I don't know if I'm saying these right, because it's been many, many years since I read these books. Um, They cast an actress. Her name is Ayula Smart. She's black to play Avienda, who is an uh, aisle. Is it aisle or eel? Anyway, in Wheel of Time books, the Isle are noted to have red hair. She is black and has red hair. <laughs> and apparently people are big mad uh, about the casting. But the, one, the first thing I thought of was El Sirens in the Ursula Chronicles. I don't describe anyone's skin color until book three. And I think that, that I start with Ty's, <laughs> Ty Summerhawk. So for the first two books, it's just that El Sirens have red hair and freckles. And uh, Lagrimari have dark hair and dark eyes. And people read that as being white and black. And because Desmond is black on the cover, you know, obviously, they're thinking uh, that it's, and they are two different races, but I don't describe skin color. And in my mind, I, you know, Elsirans have red hair, <laughs> but that doesn't mean that they're white. And so this casting, I, I sent it to my brother, this Instagram post. And I was like, Elsirans. And he's like, Yay. <laughs> I think that if the defining feature of a race of people are red hair and freckles, which I believe the the aisle are described having both also, then uh, why are you mad? Just a little thing. So, you know, our Singer Chronicles TV show, casting opportunities are wide open. Let's all just put that into the universe. (laughs) And that is it for me for this week. Uh, My goal is for the coming week finish my outline and see if I can schedule in working on two books at the same time in the same day and make that work and actually do it, (laughs) not just plan to do it and fail miserably. And I will talk to you next week. For episode show notes and to sign up for the footnotes newsletter to get the show notes in your inbox, go to myimaginaryfriendsshow.com. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and watch the video episodes on YouTube. You can email me at podcast at lpenelope.com. And I would really appreciate a rating or review to help support the show. My Imaginary Friends is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. For more fantastic podcasts, go to frolic.media slash podcasts.